Shut up and sit down. Good evening, everyone. Hope you had a fantastic um, week. It's Friday. Um, tonight's topic is original sin. We're going to talk about originality. Um, and this this actually crosses um, borders. This is this is a fandom issue. This is a issue when you're working in original fiction. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about originality and um, its place in your um, in your toolbox and. But we're also going to talk about how uh, the genres that you work in have a framework. And you can't burn down the frame. Because then you don't meet the burden of the genre and you disappoint your reader and um, everything falls to shit. So we're going to talk about it. Jilly? Yes. This is well, your this topic. This was her suggestion, so I'm going to let her... Well, this is not because somebody said something something said in another context about how even when i choose to write a trope i do it i do it with my own spin and it was not the fact that i do it with my own spin part that kind of made me stop and go whoa it was the even when you use a trope because there's no writing without tropes there's just like it'd be like somebody saying you know that you wrote a story without using any narrative beats ha 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 there's something <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, is it a script? <laughs> it's not fiction if it's, it hasn't got any narrative beats. So. And even they have instructions. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and so I was talking to Kira and I said, do you really think it's possible to write without a trope? And I'm like, I don't see how that is. And then Kira's response was, you know, the seven basic stories are all like parent tropes, right? They're all like the big right. tropes are the seven basic stories or the, the biggest tropes out there. And that's why they're the seven basic stories because they're the biggest tropes. So, I mean, you point me a story, I'll point out the trope. Yeah. Now I think uh, there, I think that there are, there's a kind of a goal probably, although sometimes the, cl the cliched approach to a trope is super satisfying, but uh, generally, I, I can see people try to avoid a cliched approach because it's like if, if it's been done so many times that it's become a cliche, you know, you kind of want to kind of put your own twist on it and do it kind of your own way. And that's where the kind of the originality comes in. It, it's in which which tropes you put together, da, 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 da. But what I see, and I actually, I saw a fan fiction once and it made, this is what this made me think of was this fanfic I read once where... The author basically started off with, you know, um, it was it was kind of like, I don't know, if she was being really judgmental about cliches and tropes, and that something about because the Harry Potter fandom loves cliches and tropes so damn much, she was going to throw as many tropes into the story as she possibly could. And I was like, wow, judgy much? <laughs> um but it's like there's this this thought that people have that they can write without tropes. But setting even if you set tropes aside, there is this aim that I see some people striving for of a trying to be original, um, to 
to, to the detriment of their story. It's like the originality comes before anything else. It comes before the GMC. It comes before pace. It comes before consistency. It comes before logical continuity. Everything is second to their need to be original. And originality, that's where the, the title of the podcast came from, is because originality for its own sake actually is terrible craft. It's, it, it's bullshit. Um, for those of you who are unaware, GMC means goals, motivations, and conflicts, right? Mm -hmm. I always get that mixed up, and I was trying to put something else in the C word, which doesn't work. Goals, motivations, and conflicts. Um, and this is, the, this is the meat of your characterization. It's the meat of your plot. And you can't have the need to be original be more important than the traditional framework by which you um, tell a story. And, and so that's why I got to, we got to talking about this and thinking, you know, we got, we need to, we've talked, you know, we kind of have talked about pieces of this in other podcasts before. Uh, you check your mic sensitivity. Is it too high or too low? Too low. I, th I mean, too high. I think because I think I'm, I'm missing a word every once in a while. You think it's too sensitive. Let me turn it down a little bit. Oh, it's it got turned down again. I don't know why Apple keeps doing this to me. Apple's so mean to you. But Sometimes the thing is, is that it's, especially when you're working in a professional environment and you're writing for a genre and you're writing to be published and you're writing for an audience, that audience expects a certain um, a certain format from you. If you're writing a cozy mystery, you can't slap a suspense plot down the middle of a cozy mystery and make your reader happy. Your reader goes to Amazon, they're looking for a cozy mystery. They're not looking for a suspense novel. And if you bait and switch them, you're going to lose a reader. So you need to know the structure of the genre that you're working in. If you're being asked by your publisher to write an urban fantasy and you write a paranormal romance, you screwed the pooch. And bestiality is a no-no in almost every publisher. <laughs> and you better check ahead of time about full shift sex too <laughs> yeah you better <laughs> just saying <laughs> but when you're trying really hard to be and the thing is you, we see people strike out in attempts to be original in really strange ways like you know I, I swear originality is how these utterly bizarre scene break markers came into being it drives me nuts. I mean, it's like people are like, well, I'm going to, that one was different than anything I've ever seen. I got to be even more different than that. You know, it's like, come on, stop it. Stars um, or lines. That's all you need. Stars or little dashes. Really, seriously, that's all you need. Because um, if you sent a publisher that shit, they would laugh at you. I mean, I wouldn't judge you for a squiggle or something. But, you know, when, when, when my phone, which is a fairly large phone, because I have an iPhone um 10 max when when my phone wraps the scene break marker four times you've gone too far <laughs> it should be four or five Lo uh, dashes or four or five stars um that is the that is the professional standard that's what editors and publishers will expect from you more often honestly than not in traditional fiction narrative, they prefer a star. So it should be four or five stars, depending on the publisher. Yeah. For I've a scene even, break. Yeah, I've even seen on my laptop a scene break that will wrap the line. Um, and, I mean, that's just a very tiny thing, right? And when I see somebody trying that hard to stand out with their scene break markers, I worry. <laughs> 
because it's like what what either what what fresh hell am I about to find in here? Um, but it, what, what, when you violate, when you burn, when you try to step outside the box, okay. So let's say that the framework, the a narrative framework, is not the box, okay. If we call like tropes the boxes within the narrative framework, and you step outside the box, right? Okay. Um, but if you're still going to be playing with that trope, you shouldn't, like Kira said, burn the box down. But you definitely can't burn the narrative framework down. That's just crazy cakes. Uh, so you can't. Yeah, you got. Yeah, you can't burn down the house you're living in. That's right. <laughs> it's absolutely right. <laughs> so it's not a good idea. <laughs> This is sort of like you're on Mars, right? If you want to write a story and you're like living on Mars in the HUD, like in the Martian, right? You don't throw things through the glass, right? It's just, it's not cool. It's just, that's not the way that works. You will die. Um, your story is going to be like those poor little potatoes that got, you know, space frozen. Um, <laughs> Bless their hearts. I thought so, I was really deeply invested in those potatoes. I was too. I, I have potato very, feelings. I was very sad for him and his potatoes. So when you, I mean, I think it's just one of the, yeah. like the, the thing is like, how can you be original? How can you be different? How can you be creative doing the thing that has been done a thousand times before? Because that is what, there is no new story under the sun. We've talked about that before. If you accept up front that your story in and of itself, in terms of trope or, you know, the basic idea framework is not going to be original because there's no such thing. There have been too many people who have gone before you. <laughs> the tropes have been basically, I mean, there are, there are new tropes that kind of evolve that are sort of like sub tropes um, or tropes, within a, but like, or with, especially within a fandom, we'll see specific tropes evolve in a fandom, but they're still similar to other tropes that have been done. They're not like just, you know, completely unique. Your originality and your uniqueness should be focused on your, on your small plot choices, not your big plot choices. They should be focused on the way you develop a character, the way that your character moves in the world. Your originality is, is not in your frame. It's in how you furnish your house. Because you don't want your house to fall down around your ears. <laughs> and that's what happens. You'll see this. It happens every single time you see a work in progress in fandom that you're really like, oh, this is really cool. And then it falls to pieces because they can't maintain it. They built a house of cards. And because they've stepped so far outside the box that they can't even fucking see the box, they can't go back to the box to get tools to continue their story. And that's what it boils down to. Yeah. And there are, but there are ways to be original with how your characters interact with your trope or what, how you develop the plot around the trope that you're using. I mean, that's where your originality is. It's not in abandoning tropes because there's no such thing. And any author who's sitting up there telling you that they aren't working with tropes is lying to themselves. For, for, ignore the fact that they're lying to you. They really probably do think that and they're full of it. They are using tropes. That's just the way it goes. Um, I you know there are some tropes I wish fandom would abandon like these second person tropes. Uh, I no I don't I don't don't tell me when to come. You're not my man. Yeah. <laughs> I well, can't as a, even. As a narrative style, I just find second person to be really unappealing. I mean, the fourth wall is there for a reason, so stop it. 
Um, I know it's but an invisible look, there's, wall. There's a whole bunch of stories on AO3 in Jurassic Park. Owen oh, slash reader. No. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> these these, re- these reader fix, it's like, oh, please. Um, but, you know, when you want, if you want, there are ways to be original to suit your need, but don't delude yourself into what, what it is you're actually doing. You are not abandoning tropes. You're probably not even completely abandoning cliches because you'd have to be aware of all the cliches to know that you weren't using any of them. <laughs> and believe me, it's pretty much impossible to be aware of all the cliches. <laughs> Because just when but you then, think, you know, you do have to recognize that some people equate cliche and trope. They don't know the difference between them. Just like there are some people who don't know the difference between a narrative and an exposition, or a premise and a theme. <laughs> I mean, it hurts me that people don't know the difference between a cliche and a trope. <laughs> I mean, you really, it hurts me. <laughs> but you know, it's true. Yeah, I. That's true. I mean, and, and I'm not, and the thing is, like, um, Margaret says in the chat room, I hate Reader Fic so much, I've not come across a good one yet, and you won't, because Reader Fic is so subjective. It really should just, mo- just it should be character slash author, because they are writing to themselves. They are writing a, a, a fic that suits exactly their needs. So it's not going to suit your needs ever as a reader. And I wouldn't, the thing is, it doesn't, somebody, somebody could, the thing is, when you say there's not any good out there or, or whatever, um, it, it means that it, you're, you're setting yourself up to be challenged, that somebody's going to try to give you reader fix that they think are good. And that's not the point. The point is not whether or not there are good ones out there. The point is that you don't like it and you don't have to like it. So don't, I wouldn't even try to find good ones. I, you don't need to find something redeeming in every narrative style. The, the writing itself isn't good. It is that the premise is so contrary to my preferred reading experience that I hate them all. Right. This is it's it's not really an, it's you know that different from I mean well in terms of preference it's not any different than somebody who hates first person fic right except that it's 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 a little bit it is it's taking it a step further right so first person is can make some people can make people uncomfortable and honestly not a lot of writers really write it all that well so i love writing in first person i don't do it much in fandom because readers um are turned off by it and um you know and as, as much as i write for myself um i don't say i'll go out of my way to set up a terrible reading experience <laughs> yeah i have i've talked before i've written more in first person than i've written in third person in my life. So, I mean, I spent probably the first 15 years of my writing or so doing nothing but writing in first person. Well, I mean, except for like when I had class projects or something, or I had to write something in a third person, I always wrote first. So, um, I wrote first person recently with a prompt. Um, the, the Sentinel gets to choose prompt we did. Mm -hmm. Um, mine was called just one touch. Yours was called choices. The very original title choice for the prompt of gets to choose. I got oh choices, choices. Yeah, okay, choices. <laughs> um, uh, and you know, I, I used to write first person all the time, but it was actually, um, actually a challenge to write in first person. So I'm glad I did it because it just re- it reminded me um, that I need to to kind of practice that because I was kind of out of practice. And honestly, but the thing is, I don't think people who dislike first person stories 
they probably have run across one or two good ones in their life, but they generally don't go out and try to force themselves to try to find good ones because they know it's not their preferred reading style, right? If they don't like it, they don't go out and seek it out and try to find. Um, they the might. best first person experience you have is the one where you forget you're reading first person. Yes. Uh, but the thing, the funny thing is I see people who really just viscerally react negatively to second person stories who will keep trying to find one that's good. And it's like, well, if you, if you really, I mean, if you, if you react really negatively to, to having the author talking to you or the character talking to you, whichever it is, you know, why would you feel like you need to get past that? I think as a writer, it is worth trying, um, different. I think it teaches you a lot about POV. Yes. Yeah. Now I have written something sort of like for second person, but not exactly. It was second person in the way it probably came across, but the whole thing was letters written between characters. So it, it was written in second person because they're talking to each other in letters. That's what you call it. It, it pistle. Yeah. Epistolary no, or something like that. Epistolary. Yes. Thank you. It was, I can, I can picture it in my brain. I, it just was not coming out of my mouth properly. So, I mean, I've done that, which is as close as I've ever wanted to get to writing second person, because I actually, I, I the fourth wall is an invisible wall, but it is, to, it, it is like, to me, the most respected wall. Do not talk to your audience, not you, not your characters. And unless this is not, you know, breaking unless, the fourth wall is often abused yeah, for unless the sake of originality. Right. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're Deadpool. Deadpool gets to break the fourth wall. Everybody else has to stop it. Um, and the reason, the term the fourth wall, for those, we've talked about in other podcasts, but for people who haven't, who haven't listened to that podcast, the term the fourth wall and the reason why it's called the fourth wall break it is coined from the theater when you had three structured walls, usually the back curtain and two side walls or effectively walls in some fashion. And then the fourth wall, the wall between the players and the audience was an invisible wall. And the general um, wisdom was that the players had to function as if the audience wasn't there. They could not acknowledge the audience, even if they were looking right that direction. There was supposed to be treated like there was a wall there, the fourth wall. So fourth wall breaks um, can be in a, a very effective narrative device, but they rarely are. <laughs> People usually don't do them well. And it's often because it doesn't, the situation doesn't warrant it, or because um, it, it, it doesn't serve a function in the story. There's no reason for the character to be talking to the audience. Um. Uh, yeah, she says a little about Ferris Bueller. Um, I don't hate the Ferris Bueller movie, but as an adult, I look back at it and I think, wow, you entitled little twat. And it's, it's really difficult to get past. And I was, mm. yeah. He's not funny. He's spoiled rotten and he's entitled and he need, and he needs to be grounded did, for the rest of his life. He did horrible <laughs> he did horrible things to his friend. Even when I even when I found the movie more entertaining than I do now, I was appalled at what he put his friend through. Yeah. So um but yeah, the, the there are fourth wall breaks, definitely a lot a lot of fourth wall breaks in Ferris Bueller. Um but Characters talking to the audience in a movie is actually a little bit easier to deal with than characters talking to the audience in a book. 
I don't, I'm not a big fan of fourth wall bricks in general. It has to really, you have to really like Deadpool to me is like one of the, one of the exceptions where I'm all in on the dead, on the, on the fourth wall break. But it's rare that I think it was actually effective enough to warrant talking to the audience that it, it merited it. And I, I almost never really think that it's, it's worth it in, in a, in a book. No, I mean, no. I think that it comes across best in movie format, and even then it has to be like... Or apparently The Office used to do it really well. Like, if something fucked up happened, the character would turn and look at the camera and be like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you fucking see that? <laughs> look at the shit I had to put up with. <laughs> So in a book, though, it can be confusing. Um, most authors do it. On, I would say actually most authors I see do it. Either put it in parentheses. They do their fourth wall breaks in parentheses, which drives me bonkers. Or they do their fourth wall breaks um, unintentionally. Uh, which is where the character, it's like the character is talking to somebody in the narrative, but it's not really clear who, which is sort of like an implicit fourth wall break. I've done this accidentally a few times. It's like, well, uh, that that the only person that per the only person the character could be talking to in this particular line is the audience, and that was accidental. Right. I see it sometimes in my first draft, which is why it's really important to have a second and a third draft, because um, you see the dumb shit that you do. Um, but well, yeah, I've done it. Usually, the accidental fourth wall breaks are where your character is being clever in the narrative, but. It, if it's not structured right, it will come across as talking to the audience. And that's what I've done. It's like, you know, my character's being a little too in character in the narrative as opposed to in their dialogue. And when you're when it sounds like dialogue, but it's narrative, that's when it starts to feel like you're talking to the audience. And I've done that. It happens. There's stuff on my, there's stuff that, I, that is finished of mine. It's on my site that to me, I went back and read it. It's some of my older stuff. I go, well, that kind of read like a fourth wall break. <laughs> Look what I did. Look, Look at, at that. my silliness. But I think it's important actually to acknowledge the mistakes you see in your older writing because it teaches you how far you've grown. Um, and um, and if you don't pay attention to it, uh, you run the risk of com often repeating those mistakes over and over and over again. But, you know, I have my very first novel that I ever wrote. I was um, 12 when I started it. And I just turned 12 that October and I got the typewriter for Christmas because um, I asked for it. Uh, so, 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 that was all I asked for. I asked for a typewriter and a box of paper and I needed little ink cartridges. And I got it and I started writing and Shortly before my 13th birthday, I put a 300-page novel down in front of my mother. And she said, what's this? I said, it's my book. <laughs> I wrote a book. She said, you wrote a book? I was like, yeah, I wrote a book. I still have it. It's horrible. Um, the pages are yellowish, and it's, you know, it's kind of crinkled around the edge. And oh, the, the grammar is an atrocity. The... The plot is ridiculous. It's it's very Harlequin um, desire. Um, the sex is plausible because I wrote Harlequin desire sex, you know. So it's not like I wrote what I read. So it it wasn't like I wrote anything that was you terribly on, explicit. You were on brand. 
I was on point though. Yeah. I'll, I'll give myself that. Uh, but, uh, and my mom read it and she told me it was great and it was wonderful and asked me what my next one was going to be about. Now, looking at it today, <laughs> I know she did not think it was great, but I think maybe she did think it was wonderful because I did it. <laughs> well, <and laughs> because I wrote it. I wrote this it, big, no, I, I wrote a novel. I mean, novel. you know, a full fledged novel. At that age, you know, I mean, she must have been so proud of you. I mean, our 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 writing age was the same. I started writing at twelve too, but I got my first computer when I was twelve. So, um, I I did my first writing on a computer. So, the very first thing I ever wrote from start to finish was on a three and a quarter floppy disk. Um, <laughs> and um, oh man, I mean, I I I don't I I I haven't reread read that story since I was probably twenty, but I remember what it was about. I mean, you know. Girl gets amnesia. Of course she does. <laughs> I was I'll tell you, I was on brand for the 80s, man. <laughs> amnesia was a big trope in the 80s, I'm just saying. That and quicksand. Is anybody else really surprised by the lack of quicksand in your life? I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> and pirates. <laughs> I'm really shocked about the lack of pirates. There are no pirates, there's no quicksand. I mean, you know, it's just like in the 70s and 80s, you couldn't practically go anywhere without falling into quicksand on TV. Yeah. And there was always a pirate to abduct you who managed who usually in a in a good in a good pirate story respected your limits and waited for you to be ready to have sex with him. So <laughs> unlike you know that lord you got forced to marry <laughs> who yes. made you consummate your wedding night, well the pirate who kidnaps you respects your brown your, your boundaries and treats you like an equal. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> uh, or or that you managed to stow aboard the pi pirate ship and convince people you were cabin boy, you know. So yeah, I'm so pissed off about the little farm and the little forest animals not cleaning my house. I don't care if they sing to me, but the but the lack of cleaning is a little irritating. I'm actually quite pleased they don't sing at me, but yeah, I, I'm I'm sad about the no cleaning. But you know, and the funny thing is, I mean, I have talked about how much I hate amnesia stories before. I really hate that trope. As a trope, I don't mind amnesia as a minor plot point. I don't like it when it is the whole plot, which is, it, it has nothing to do with the fact that this forced awful novel I wrote featured amnesia. <laughs> that actually is not a connection between the two. It's one of those things that where the trope gets so overdone um, that you start to dislike it, and I think. I think a lot of the big romance tropes from the eighties so oversaturated the market with that trope that I think people started to hate them. Um, that's what the I started. Worse, I think, and this is terrible. I'm going to say this, and you're going to be ha ha ha. You wrote one. Um, the only thing worse in the eighties than the amnesia trope was the secret baby trope. Secret baby. <gasps> uh, the thing I disliked a bit worse, although this may have been more of a nineties trope. Um, no, I distinctly remember a story from the 80s that featured this, was the big misunderstanding. The misunderstanding that kept a couple apart for, you know, 80,000 words. I hated the big misunderstanding. <laughs> I was like, can't you two talk like adults? What the fuck is wrong with you? I want to read that. Jeep said there's a BBC Sherlock story, a BBC Sherlock story where Sherlock has amnesia and deducts that John is his husband. Where is my link? <laughs> <laughs> the the only and I've I've talked to something. I demand time, tribute. <laughs> yes, the only time I can think of that I've ever liked an amnesia story since the eighties 
was that one Buffy story where Xander and Spike both get doused with demon's blood that gives them amnesia when they're together. And they're like mortal enemies at that point. But because of some things they have on them at the time that this all happens, like Spike picked up, he, he actually stole a letter that Xander left for his girlfriend and it included Xander's new house key and some things in the letter and their ID and stuff make them think they're a couple. And they're both really confused by this. So they don't like just jump into bed together or anything like that. But they're both like, we're together? And he says, well, you see this story? It says, hey there, Blondie, aren't you talking to me? And then when Spike finds out he's a vampire, because he doesn't know. <laughs> oh, no. So <laughs> when, he, when he figures out he's a vampire, he utterly freaks out. He utterly freaks out about the fact that he's a vampire. Because the whole thing is just so traumatizing to him that he's... Because he's like, how? And he's like, and then he's like, but you love me anyway, even though I'm like this. It's just, I thought it was very sweet story. It was very charming, but it was also to me kind of funny. So, I think the story is called Sweet Memories, if I remember the title correctly. I don't remember who wrote it, but I know it's over on the Spander files. Um, so, but it's it's it. But we I did not enjoy the. Uh, well, no, that's not the right one. It's, it's, I don't really enjoy amnesia episodes in, in shows all that much. Um. I think the only thing missing from John's picture in Lauren's pocket was that someone really should have wrote fluffy, um, fluffy-haired idiot on it. <laughs> Obviously, McKay never had access to that picture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah, Desert Poet found it. It's called uh, Sweet Memories by Kayla. That's the uh, Buffy story? Yes. So Xander has a girlfriend. What happens with the girlfriend? Well, every, uh, this is one of those cases of like like the most awful girlfriend in history because she's actually a former vengeance demon. So I don't think anybody she she was planning to break up with. The thing is, she's not even looking for Xander because she was going to go over to his house and break up with him, as I recall. And Xander didn't know that. So he finds out after he gets his memories back that you know, like so nobody knows they're missing for quite a while, if I remember correctly. So he's yeah, all and, yeah. he, um, he's all deep in this relationship with Spike that they've created because they thought they were lovers. <laughs> <laughs> Spike breaks into Xander's old place, finds this letter for Xander's girlfriend that says, you know, he I think he just calls her like hey blondie or something. And of course, Spike's a blonde. Right. Um and um actually since it's up, I the little oh it says hey baby. I never watched it either. Yeah, okay, this is the letter that confuses Spike. Spike picks up this letter with the key that says, Hey, babe, finally made it out of the basement. Why don't you bring your gorgeous blonde self over to my new place? We can celebrate. Here's the key. Just come on by. And then there's an address. Love and kisses. So that's the letter and the key that Spike has on him when he and Xander gets doused with the z demon blood, which that makes them think that they're in a relationship together <laughs> because of that letter, which Spike stole. <laughs> <laughs> As a vampire would, you know, because he's a vampire. So, so there was a non-dead brother who had amnesia due to his encounter with Quicksand, who was kidnapped by a pirate, who was secretly a lord, and they fell in love and had babies. <laughs> <laughs> she had to throw in the male preg in there. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. Good idea. There's a whole bunch of male preg books on Amazon. Now, yeah. I was like, I wow, mean, what a fandom bleed. So, yeah. Cause I mean, there, there. I don't, I don't think there used to be. No. If there was, I, I mean, this is, this is, this, I think this is somewhat of a um, symptom of self-publishing. Not that I mean, it's fine because mainstream publishers were not going to pick up that trope. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> 
Oh, Jeep found it. It's called the the Sherlock figures out gets amnesia and figures out that he's um, what, what meets the eye by by world according to fangirls, all one word. World according to fangirls, one word, no spaces, no underscore, spelled just like it sounds. It's got fifteen thousand kudos and five hundred and two comments and eighty two hundred words. And it's I guess got two hundred thousand hits. So that's not bad. I'll have to, I'll have to been, check that out. It's got multiple translations, um, which also speaks to good because um, most people aren't really interested in translating something terrible. Yeah. So it's got <laughs> it's got four translations. So four other languages, and I actually since I actually have no idea what those languages are. <laughs> um, I'll try to figure it out if anybody. I love, Jeff, I, no idea. I love the summary. Says, Amnesia is just another case to solve. Piece together unfamiliar faces, reconstruct the old identity, the lost reality. A challenge that Sherlock could even enjoy. He can read people like books. The, the man with the silver hair is his boss. <laughs> the tottering old lady is his landlady. The girl with the word look in her eyes, infatuated. As for John Watson, his husband, obviously. <laughs> obviously. Obviously. <laughs> I'm in love already. <laughs> now, I will say part of the reason why I would even give this story a go because of my deep abiding dislike of the amnesia trope is because it's not very long. Um, 8,200 words. So they're you... not going to drag the amnesia out for months. Right. Because see, the, the problem with the amnesia fic is that um, I read one in the Stargate fandom and it um, Rodney uh, and John were together. And they kind of fell apart because of Rodney's personality. He, um, he was just, he just couldn't get there. And the day he realized that John wasn't going to come back, he had a, um, he, he disassociated and forgot himself because he blamed himself for the loss of this relationship. And he just kind of threw it all away. He just threw everything away and he started over. And he didn't know who anybody was, not even himself. And um, he had all these pictures um, and all this music. And he was an astrophysicist, but he couldn't do that anymore because he'd forgotten it. He'd forgotten it. He'd forgotten everything he'd learned about being a fucking astrophysicist. And I was like, God, it just stripped Rodney Bear. And it was, it was a really good fic, um, but he never gets it back. Yeah, then I I actually am honestly more with a really long story that has amnesia. I'm more likely to read it if they never get it back because he never gets it back. He um he turns to music and he becomes a concert pianist. Um, he reconnects with John and and it's beautiful, but it's also just agonizing. So I read a I read a story that was intent. It was a, sort of a redemption arc for a character, not a, not a great character, or depending upon your perspective about the character, where they. This is probably another reason why I like amnesia fix, but they 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 lose their they lose they lose their memories, and then they're told the doctors, you know, the doc, well the doctor says that the brain damage is permanent. They're never going to get those memories back, and so you see this person become a new, like a better version of themselves, kind of thing. Sort of like, it, 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 because and because it was a character that uh, morally ambiguous. Let's say that if not if not outright a bad guy, depending upon your interpretation. So you could see it as a redemption arc. 
right? And the, so the story is well done. And you get to the, you know, the penultimate chapter and you're thinking, you know, they're in love, their life is moving on together. And then you get to the epilogue and it turns out he's been faking the whole time. <gasps> and rude. Yeah. I, I was sort of, so now I've gone from a character. This actually was a character, like I said, morally ambiguous to sometimes bad guy, but actually a character I like who I, in this story detested because this whole thing was a con. Uh. So, um, uh, and because of that kind of unreliable narrator thing and the bait and switch where the kind of, uh, yeah, that was more of an issue with, with, the, with the author. Um, you know, I, I don't like that kind of, those kind of tactics to kind of draw people in, you know, where, and that's, what, that's probably another reason why I don't like unreliable narrator is because so I often, actually hate an unreliable narrator with the, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. The only exception being um, Amelia Peabody. Because she's not just lying to you; she's lying to herself too. <laughs> no. I mean, she's totally lying on the fact. Oh, her old her age isn't getting her age isn't getting her way. She can still sprint across the desert and catch a murderer. She's mm -hmm. every bit of sixty. Sure, sure, Amelia. <laughs> well, unreliable narrator. Unreliable narrator. That is. Um, there, there are times when narrators are unreliable for a variety of reasons, but for, for a short period of time, like if somebody has a head injury or they're under the influence of alcohol or drugs or whatever, if they've had some kind of, so for the, if you're in that character's point of view for the duration of time, and then you find out something they said is winds up being inaccurate and it was because they had a head injury. I totally am fine with that because that's at the time that the character said those things, it was not intended to be misleading. Right. So that's the complete, that's like situationally unreliable, but it's when the author uses an unreliable narrator as a bait and switch that I cannot stand that. I hate feeling misled and lied to. So, um, it really irritates me. And, I, I and that's a like ploy that, you know, it's, that's an originality ploy. That whole thing that you talked about where you thought the, the character had amnesia, the whole thing, but in the prologue, you find out he was faking. Um, they're, they're trying to stand out. They're, mm -hmm. they're trying to um, make you remember their story. And you will, but not for the reason they wanted. Yes. They wanted, you to, they wanted you to think that they were unique and original and stunning. But all you really thought was it was bullshit. Yeah. And a lot of originality ploys that are just original for the sake of being original, that's exactly the words I wind up putting to them. Oh, that was bullshit. It's the same thing. Somebody mentioned in the chat room a nonlinear narrative. Um, a lot of times, nonlinear narratives are done to me, and especially when they're when they're like like chaotically un a nonlinear. It feels like they're trying to be original, like they're giving you the setup in little dribs and drabs over twenty or thirty thousand words where you're flashing back to prior events and then you get a teeny bit more of the present and then flashing back to prior events and then a teeny tiny bit more of the present and then flashing back. And it's like, Oh my God, just tell us why they're in this room. No, I can't. I can't. I cannot um, fucking stand it on the internet. I've been really looking forward to um, watching how to get away with murder, how to get away with murder and then I watched the first episode and I realized it was going to be told in a nonlinear fashion and I never went back. I can't. The only thing I watched that was nonlinear was Cold Case. That um, was different though. 
Yeah, because it was two different time streams. And you have the investigation going on in the present. And the, the flashback scenes, the nonlinear scenes, was showing you visually what they're uncovering about the past. So that worked for me. That did work. It worked really well. I was disappointed when Cold Case was canceled. I, th I thought it was a really good show. So there are times when everything can work well. Um, but it, sometimes something can really only be done. The person who did it well the first time may have found the way to do it well. And it needs to be left alone. We don't need another EE e. coming. Stop it. Capitalize your fucking letters. For real, honestly. And also, truth, tr 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 true fact here. If I ever wrote a nonlinear story, it would be that I published it in a nonlinear fashion, but I wrote it in a linear fashion. Because I am incapable of writing out a sequence. Outside of, like, when I'm doing my second and third draft where I can insert scenes and stuff. Other than that, I can't do it. You won't catch me writing the end of my book until I've written the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I, I might know what I want to say at the end, but I don't write it out. <laughs> I mean, the only time I can think of that I might wind up in a nonlinear situation in the overall arc of a series, not a story, but an arc of a series, would be if I wrote the series from beginning to end and then decided I wanted to write some minor character's story that was like a side story that in chrono chronologically would be told in the middle, but that I actually wrote it last. I, mean, I wrote an uh, interlude for Ties That Bind because um, I had hinted at it a couple times. And then somebody asked for it, so I wrote it. But then they also kind of wanted me to tell that story. And I thought, I can't. I, I can't tell the story of, of Gerard and Rodney's months together training in that last training session because um, they, they both fell in love and it ends so bittersweet. Yeah. So I know it's, I, the, there's no happily ever after there. I can't write that, you know? I actually don't like it when authors do that. When they write, like, the backstory with a partner that somebody was happy with. That doesn't... I, I read that recently in a story. I really love the story. And then I found out there was another part two. And the part two was the the people that expressed a lot of interest in the character with the, the OC. Oh, you already know you're not going to wind up with that OC, but the relationship was written so well. And I just was like, oh my God, I can't read this. What the fuck? Because I actually liked the relationship they were in with this OC better than the end game. I was like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> I'm rooting for the OC and I already know how it's going to go. So, but like um, one of the sci fi series I read that it's, it's sort of written in a, it's sort of written in a, it's mostly was written linear, but she like writes like wrote a couple side stories of for other characters in the series that if you put the series in chronological order, even though those were written later, they fall in a different place in the chronology. But I don't really consider that nonlinear writing. So I could probably do it in a series. I've I've done it here and there. You know, I've I've write um I've written although like there's a kind of like there are two different um little interludes in Sentinels of Atlantis uh, that I published after the fact that I actually wrote to kind of get my headspace when I was doing the writing for the main part. Like the matter of the, the matter of female Sentinels and aftermath, which mm -hmm. is uh, Elizabeth's um, coming online as a Sentinel and then Anne Teldy meeting her guide. Um, I actually wrote those when I was writing um, just to kind of get a feeling for the characters. 
and then I put them up afterwards as interludes. Yeah. And I, I could totally, that, that works, but they're not, they fall in a different place in the chronology than they did in the, in how you wrote them. Right. But, but within their own story, they're still linear. And I mean, to me, if I was going to write a flashback in a story, it would either be a dream or a literal flashback. Like somebody having a psychological episode where they are having a flashback, not just thinking about the past. Because right. I was reading something recently and I noped out. I was reading along and everything's going fine. And then there's a flashback and it's, I, I had been enjoying the story that's thus far. And then it said flashback. And I was like, Oh my God, we're labeling a flashback. Okay. But we'll see how many of them there are. I'm going to give you one cruising in. And we start with, you know, earlier that afternoon. Da, 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 da. Well, for starters, you don't need to label it flashback if you say earlier the after that afternoon because i just, I just my, my my eyebrow just twitched right but anyway so i'm, I'm thinking amateur this is like an amateurish way of handling a flashback but okay because they set the stage for for the flashback without labeling it but all right so it says earlier that afternoon we get like three or four paragraphs and then it said but earlier that morning paragraph paragraph cover and then the night prior paragraph 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 i was like are we nesting flashbacks here? How am I going to get back to the present? I feel like I'm in a temporal loop. I have to nope out of this now before I get stuck in a temporal bubble and I never know <laughs> what the present is again. <laughs> I mean, we were three flashbacks deep before I, I noped out and said, I don't want to know how deep this is going to go. In the middle of my backswing. <laughs> if you don't get it, you don't deserve to get it. Um... <laughs> That's right. There's some things you just need to get on your own. Um, I, I, um, I, I think I have like one flashback in my fan fiction right now, and I've, I don't think I've ever done it professionally. Um, there's a flashback in the search where um, Allison remembers uh, she's trying to get her mind off of what's about to happen. She thinks she's going to die, so she's thinking about that moment when um, her and her sentinel got on the same page <laughs> they weren't on the same page for a long time like for, for them and so they got on the same page and, that, and that's what she's thinking about because she thinks she's going to die and, and when i was when i was struggling i was struggling to frame that scene for her and and how she would um where she would go mentally or emotionally because her sentinel is in stasis and she thinks she's going to die and she's just hoping that they can get a situation in place to save Anne. And that's all she has left. And so I was trying to figure out where would she go? And that was the moment I picked. And it but framing it was um, worrisome. I always I always worry about framing something like that. It's like, is, is the reader going to recognize her in a flashback? I'm not labeling it. <laughs> yeah. How you, the thing is, one of the things about you have to recognize when you're doing flashbacks is that people do skim. Skimming is, but I skim a lot with, especially if people have a lot of exposition. I'm just, and if you aren't reading closely, you can miss the framing on a flashback really. And then, and then you're confused and then you have to back up. So it is just something to be aware of that the, even if you write it absolutely correctly, where you framed it absolutely right, the transition in and out of the flashback so that you don't use a bunch of italics and you use all of the right verbs and you're using the right, you know, you're using the right verb tense, which would be past perfect, by the way. Um, you, 
you've got all that right, but if people are skimming and they miss that transition, they're just going to be confused. So um, I think all of this italics and labeling flashbacks just encourages lazy reading. The but, only thing worse, I think, probably than labeling a flashback would be um, alternating points of view in first person where you're labeling the POV. And I see that in professional work these days. And it drives me nuts. Yeah, the only time I can tolerate alternating first person is it has to be a rigid structure. It's every other chapter. So character A gets the even chapters. Character B gets the odd chapters. Um and that's the way it goes. And you don't label them for fuck's sake. Because it should be, even in first person, you should be able to telegraph your point of view. Um, but I prefer, and, and the thing is, that would have to be a big exception. Like somebody has to tell me this is the, somebody I trust has to tell me this is the best story I've ever heard, be, rep, ever read. Because for me, for first person is a single point of view in a story. That is my. I think that I probably standard. would have an easier time with a dual first-person point of view if I was listening to an audiobook and if it was told, you know, with different voices. Yeah, two voice actors would work. Yeah, but as a reading experience, no. Yeah, and I'm not actually one who goes um, whole hog on an audiobook anyway. It's rare for me. I really enjoyed The Martian, um, but that's not my usual. Um, I have to be busy or driving or something to want an audiobook. And then if the narrator's not good, I'm not interested. And um, generally, it, reading's a very intimate pastime for me, which is why I like reading it, not hearing it. Uh, but I will say, if you're going to do, if you want to try different kinds of ways to like, you know, branch out your creativity or whatever, and you want to try a nonlinear writing where you've got like two time streams you're working with, you have to stay linear within each time stream that you got. And for God's sakes, limit yourself. You can't have three or four moments in time that you're exploring and then jump around in each different time stream. It just doesn't work. It's, it's psychotic. It's impossible to keep track of. It, it, I mean, it gives me a headache just thinking about it. And the reason I, I mean, it's not like I just don't read these stories. I, there was nonlinear narrative was a big thing for a while. So I've read a lot of nonlinear books and I've seen it done well and I've seen it done really badly. And when people try to be super original with nonlinear narrative, the results are catastrophic. That's the thing about having these, these, these options in your toolbox is knowing when to use them and when how to use them. And the best way to learn that is by doing. Um, but you're going to make mistakes and that's perfectly okay. Yeah. But find find something that does it well and figure out what about that was good and then do that. And so the, like the best nonlinear thing, if we look at the best nonlinear in terms of story I've ever read was um, it was just what I said. It was only two time streams for starters. There was something happening way in the past. It was a vampire book. Something happening way in the past with the vampire's first life, right? When they first returned. And then there's the present. And both were happening in a, both time streams were linear within their own time stream. So whenever you were jumping back into the past, like the cue that you were back in the past was at the, you know, the chapter heading would say 18 something, right? You're back in the 1800s. And when the next chapter would come, it'd be back in the 1900s. But within each time stream, the progression of events was linear. So, I tried to do that with my wearable story. I was telling, um, how the Therans came to be on Earth and their progression into mating with humans. 
Um, so I had like uh, a story narrative set in Egypt um, during the time of, of Ra's enslavement and eventual overthrow. Um, and then I had another narrative on Atlantis. And, you know, the more I think about this fix, the more I think to myself, could you just have layered like one more thing on it that you had a problem with to do at the same time? It's like I set myself up for failure. Okay, see, let's just do two stories at once. You're going to try some nonlinear. You're going to try some ABO. And you're going to write a shifter. And it's going to be on Atlantis. I mean, the only thing I actually that could have actually made it any work. I, I don't know what else I could have done on top of it. I, I, and, and you probably had to research ancient Egypt, ju judging by what you just said. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So you gave yourself a, anyway. You gave yourself a oh, research Oh, Mel Peck was already in it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So you gave yourself a research task on top of it. I mean, and that's one of the things we've talked about before about going into like rough trade or is don't get, it's you, sometimes the challenge is enough. Don't give yourself extra challenges. Oh, the burden. You know, somebody wrecked a story to me um, recently. I get, I don't, I can't, I don't, I get more, I get way more. I would say 90% of the wrecks that people send me are stories I wouldn't read in a million years. But every once in a while, somebody wrecks a story to me that is phenomenal, right? But sometimes it's just like on the surface of it. Like somebody says, I think that you'll love this. And I look at it and I look at just the tags and the tropes the person's using. And I go, I'm not going to love any of that. <laughs> I am never in the mood for that kind of story. Um, and that's one of the things about stories is that the best version, whatever, the best version of something is not going to appeal to everybody. The very best amnesia story out there is not going to appeal to everyone because not everybody likes that kind of thing. So part of me kind of wants to write one. I mean, I've never written amnesia. I'm I know. You. Did you just huff? I know, I right? Did. Um, I wrote Secret Baby. Uh, but the other side of it is it could be really interesting to explore the, the, the loss of your identity and um and what you do after that and that starting over in adulthood with um was it can be really interesting if i were to write an amnesia fic i would probably be inclined to write it from the amnesiac's point of view in first person um and i would worry to turn into a giant angst fest <laughs> but maybe not i don't know my biggest problem with amnesia fix are the people around the person with amnesia uh, and, and how they respond to it. Um, whether if it's like, oh, we should keep all this information from them. It would be upsetting. They don't need to know it. Um, or, you know, there's that one person trying to manipulate them into a better person or different person or, you know, and then I read a, I remember reading a book a long time ago in the 80s where this woman had amnesia and she didn't know who she was and she ended up in a relationship with this man and they have sex and everything and she has no idea who she is. She has no idea if she has a husband out there or, you know, obviously she didn't because it was a romance novel, but the, but it really bothered me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> she didn't know anything she didn't know anything about herself and yet she was engaging in this relationship with this man she didn't even know her own name and i think at the point if if, it's, if the amnesia is permanent you do have to start over right but this mm -hmm. was like just weeks <laughs> this was weeks and as it turned out she'd been living under an assumed identity because she was in the witness protection program obviously 
<laughs> Obviously, because of course she was in Witsec. When was this? Was this in the? Was this the nineties? It sounds like the nineties. It might have been. I was not. Yeah, I was in college, so definitely the nineties. In the nineties, yeah. See, I, I'm thinking I'm to myself not, at that point. Okay, she has the worst Witsec handler in the history of the world. Because how has he lost his his his? person and worse because she had amnesia she was all over the news people were trying to figure out who she was <sighs> see i know my, i know my 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 decades on my romance tropes <laughs> like witsack amnesia that sounds like the 90s if it was amnesia and pirates it would definitely be the 80s <laughs> amnesia and pirates <laughs> I don't, I don't have, I don't know who I am, but you're Blackbeard. Okay. I, I belong on this pirate ship. Sure. Sure. I must belong on this pirate ship. I'm here. No matter where you go, there you are. <laughs> Buckaroo Bonsai theory of life. Oh, my thing stopped scrolling. It stopped scrolling at Dark Seraphina's fireworks. I find that mine scrolls the best if I have a blinking cursor in the box. Well, I just put my cursor in the box. Okay. But yeah, that, that does become an issue of consent and autonomy is how can she can give consent for anything if she doesn't know who she is. If she hasn't had a chance to rebuild who she is, if she's not going to get it back. Well, that's an interesting juggling act, right? Because if the doctors say you might get your memory back in a few days, they don't let you make decisions. But at some point, they have to let you make decisions because you're a human being who can think. So they can't just keep depriving you of the right to make your own choices. Right. And maybe amnesiac you would make different choices than you with memories, but that's sort of one of the pitfalls of the trope is at what point do people have to step back and let the person who can't remember make their own choices. And, you know, I think that it, it's just, that's something one, one of those things you have to be very careful with in that trope is that, you not have somebody falling into bed with somebody who's lost their memory, um, especially, you know, like 24 hours ago, especially not if the person they're falling into bed with knows they lost their memory 24 hours ago. And I think even more if they know who they are, like if, like if they know who they are and they're, it, it's like, there's a, there's a level of manipulation there because, because it, it, is this someone she would normally sleep with or is this someone that she's repeatedly told no and he's using this to his advantage so it it's a, it's a very it's it's a trope that can go very wrong very quickly um and and the thing is some of the questions that come from the chat room that I'm not going to repeat are things that have occurred in romance novels that wind up being like a bait and switch kind of thing or in suspense stories where it's sort of like the bait and switch on the reader because things are not what they appear to be. You find out the person's been being lied to all along. They're being manipulated. And, and some of the amnesia, especially if they're the POV character is inherently an unreliable narrator. I remember watching overboard when I was younger and loving it. Yeah, and um, then as an ad adult, you watch it and you go, mm. I love Goldie Hawn. I love um, uh, Kurt Russell. His name just fell right out of my brain. Kurt, Kurt Russell. Russell. Kurt Russell. I love them together. I um, They recently did a Christmas card together where he played Santa and she played Mrs. Santa. It's just the cutest damn thing you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, they're together as a couple, although I'm not sure they're married. I don't think they ever got married. I don't think that was really in their plan. They just got together and stayed together. And, and they're really awesome, right? But the movie, oh God, the movie. And But I remember enjoying it when I was young. And now looking back on it to myself, how dare you sleep with her? 
how dare I mean, you know, it's bad enough what you did to her. And maybe maybe she was an asshole and she kind of deserved a little bit of it, but she didn't deserve to be she didn't seduced that. into to thinking that she loved you. Yeah. And that she made a family with you. Not when he knew differently. Right. And the the issue and this the issue with them that that would be the same issue you'd have with time travel, right? Is one character knows something to be true. But the other, you have to be very careful with it in these tropes where one character has an imbalance of knowledge. Um, that they are they using that to their advantage against the character they're in bed with, right? Which creates a yeah. The re actually the the remake looks really. I I saw the previews. It made me really uncomfortable. It's like they doubled down on all the things that were wrong with Overboard. Yeah, Anna um, Anna Ferris playing the role that Kurt Russell played. Um, she's the one. Um, who gets one over on the rich guy with amnesia. Um, I don't intend on watching it. I, you know, I don't know. As an adult, it's just really, it's, it's really hard to, to look at a movie like amnesia, like a overboard and, and not see it as one big prelude to rape because Joanna would have never slept with him. Annie no. did. Now, and she, and he knew she wouldn't have, I mean, but also, she was married. Granted, she was married to a douche, but she was married. And even Annie wouldn't have cheated on her own husband. Yeah. It is right by fraud. You're absolutely right, Ari. And it's just, it's it's supposed are, to be a comedy, but it stopped being funny to me about two decades ago. So There are, there are some states where having, they actually, it's, it's written in law um, that having sex with somebody uh, under false, basically under false pretenses. I can't remember how the law is actually worded in this one state I was reading about, but basically, it's like if you lie to somebody about something that affect would that would have that would have swayed their decision about whether or not to sleep with you, that it is basically could be construed as sexual battery. Um, which is a, and it, it was it was not a very progressive state. So it was an interest. I remember reading this about. So it, it was it was interesting. I remember it sticking in my mind because I'm like, wow, they've got a more progressive law about that kind of thing than they do in California. But then somebody pointed out to me that you know the intention of it was something uglier. But it didn't. The intention of it was to say that if you were transgender, full with surgery, and you have sex with a man who's who's straight, and you don't disclose the fact that you used to be that you were born male, that you can go to jail for it. It's right by fraud. That was the intention. But those words explicitly, because they weren't in the law, and I was just reading the, the statute, and that was that specifically, there was no specifically called out anything about being transgender. Um, but that, I would actually think this situation where, where in this movie where he lies to her about being Everything until up, um, whatever humor, it's comedy up until the point where he has sex with her, and then it's rape. And everything, so the whole rape by fraud thing there, I think that would absolutely apply under a law like that. Um, like I think that law could also be used, like if you have like AIDS and don't disclose, or if you um, are married and don't disclose. Yeah, because if if somebody would say no to you, and yes, maybe law, I, it's unfortunate that laws that protect people can also be used to victimize people. 
I really wish it didn't work that way. And I, it, it's, it's infuriating that it does work that way. But really, if people are lying to you to get in your pants and you wouldn't sleep with them if you knew the truth about them, and it's and in the case of like AIDS or um, being married, I wouldn't sleep with somebody if I knew they were married. I wouldn't no, sleep neither. with them if I knew that I wouldn't probably wouldn't sleep with them if I knew they had AIDS. So I feel like that, you know, and, and to find that kind of thing out later, it feels like a gross violation. But you have to ask yourself is, is where is that line? Is it just um, like, I know a man um, who is black, but regularly passes for white. And he dated a woman for six months before she found out that he was African-American. I don't I mean, now I, yeah, he, he literally can pass. He does pass on a regular basis. Um, people he works with has no idea that he's African-American. And it's offensive as fuck to my husband, who is African-American, and he thinks he's a douche for passing. You know, it's just, it's, it's terrible. Um, but is that, is that fraud? I think it, I, well, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a very interesting line. I think a question comes, always comes down to, and I think it should always come down to, was there an overt lie? Did you tell someone? I don't someone, know if the Rock came and said that he was Caucasian. Um, but he certainly let her believe it for six months. I mean, lie by omission, I think it's a very gray area. But I think overt lies is where I think that that, that kind of law should be employed kind of thing. Like if someone tells you that they're single when they're in fact married, that's an overt lie. I agree. I agree. Um, you know, I mean, I, I would hate to think. It's not his fault he passes, but it is his fault that he doesn't correct people and that often in situations he will laugh at racist jokes to keep his facade. Well, I mean, I have a friend who, who she's, I mean, she's princess tiny tits. She's very, she's, she's on the male, male end of the spectrum of androgynous. And, um, I'm literally like no boobs to speak of. It's like all nipples, right? So um, she routinely people think she's male. Um, she doesn't care that people think she's male at all. But if it comes up, she will correct people that she's female. And if someone hits on her, she makes sure they understand that she's female. Because her, and that's the case of her gender identity, right? She identifies as female. She just doesn't happen to look at, you know, outwardly. And she's fine with that. She's fine. You know, she's perfectly happy and comfortable where she is. Um, but she never actually overtly lies or lets people believe something false about her. Because, you know, she, and, and she has a very nice, she goes, oh, actually, I'm female. Now, some people probably think that, you know, probably make assumptions that she's trans or something. Um that's really nobody's business but hers. But she doesn't overtly go out and tell people she's male just because she looks. People assume she's male. So I think that there's Speaking a different... Speaking of androgyny, one of my... Um, guess, your cousin's children are your, are your cousins, first cousins. First cousin, first cousin. Your cousin's children... Your first cousin's children are your first cousins once removed, I think. Okay. So he recently... He recently turned 18... And he came out. No. Second Cousins is something different. Um, and uh, we were all like looking at each other. And he's like, aren't you going to say anything? I'm like, uh, is this something new to you? Or or what? 
he was like, I said, dude, you've got a picture of Justin Timberlake, a poster, a life-size poster of Justin Timberlake stripped to the waist on your wall. Am I the only one who did? <laughs> You're <laughs> just okay. Congratulations on being gay. <laughs> Not a surprise to anybody. <laughs> we all knew. <laughs> now, I mean, the, there nice some, poster. <laughs> there are some things I don't think. I mean, the, it's it's just it's just kind of a squiggly line, right? It's like if somebody. If I'm climbing in the sheets with somebody and they ask me an explicit question, like there's some things I don't feel like I need to tell somebody. Like I don't feel like I need to tell somebody explicitly where I fall on the Kinsey scale. Cause you know, if we're climbing in the sheets, that should be enough in general. But if they specifically ask me, are you straight? Like if I've decided to bag a dude, right? If that were to happen and they specifically ask me, are you straight? I probably A would find that offensive and not sleep with them. But B, I would not, I would answer the question no. I would explicitly answer because if they explicitly ask, I would answer. No, I'm not. Right. And the since you asked, we're done. Because <laughs> um, all that, you know, but so, I mean, I don't feel, I feel like you need to like have like a, you know, a biographical sheet that you present to people to keep from being dishonest. But, you know, it, it's, it's interesting where, where those lines fall. But there's a difference between not disclosing something and having people assume it about you versus overtly lying. And I think that, you know, I think for me, that's the only where I can draw that line right now is did you overtly lie? Because lies of omission, I don't know that they matter all that much, legally speaking. Somebody, somebody may try to make them matter legally, but I don't know if that would ever hold up an appeals court. But that's a complete sidetrack off of... Oh, but on the second cousin thing, all of your all of your grandparents' grandchildren are your first cousins. Your great aunt, which means your grandmother's sister, all of her grandchildren would be your second cousins, right? First cousins once removed are your cousins' children or your parents' cousins' children. Children, but like, and then you go. If you when get into you go, a great aunt or a great uncle, that's where you get your second cousins from. Yeah. But basically, any relationship to your first cousins or your parents' first cousins are your first cousins once removed. That's your closest family circle, is your first cousins and your first cousins once removed. That's actually a better chart than most I've seen. Much better. I shall save this for later in case I need it. Because some of the first, some of the cousin charts I've seen actually are like dizzying trying to decipher what the hell they're talking about. Um, most people have no idea that I'm an atheist, and uh, unless they listen I, to your podcast, yeah, or on my podcast, <laughs> yeah. But like, for most people in re like people around me have no. It isn't like I'm I'm wearing a T-shirt that says, "Hey, I'm an atheist." Um, and when people, you know, if I sneeze in public and someone says, "God bless you," I say, "Thank you." I'm, I don't get offended. <laughs> I'm more likely to say "bless you" than not, because it's just like a a habit from from just growing up around people who say bless you when you sneeze uh i say merry christmas to people and if somebody says it to me i say it to them if they say happy holidays i say happy holidays so for that one time i told a stranger merry christmas and i don't know what i was thinking i was just it just came out of my mouth you were and just this, you were just filled with the holiday spirit i was i was fooled up <laughs> 
this hussy pulls out a pamphlet and tries to um and I mean hussy in a general sense, not personally, just I don't know her personal habits. But she she pulls this pamphlet out of her um her bag and starts to lecture me about um holidays. I think she was Seventh day at Venice. Um and I was like, ma'am. And she kept talking. I said, ma'am, blah blah blah, ma'am. I'm actually an atheist. I was just trying to be polite. And you can shove your pamphlet where the sun doesn't shine. Because you've exhausted all my politeness. <laughs> I am not interested in your in your in your in your conversion therapy. Thank you. No. No, Seventh day Adventists don't celebrate anything. They don't they don't do that. So I have people regularly trying to convert me who live across the breezeway, so you know, then they've done that. So I try to be polite. So most people have no idea that, that I'm an atheist. And um, I try to keep my opinions about people's sky fairies to myself unless they get in my face. Um, but uh, someone told me once that I should respect their religion, and I don't. I don't respect anybody's religion. I'll respect you as a person, but I don't respect religion. Yeah. I respect your right. It's sort of like I respect your right to have a belief. It doesn't mean I have to respect your belief. That's crazy. But they only want you to respect their religion, not anybody else's. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> people who want religion in schools, they don't want our religion in schools. They just want their own. But, you know, I mean, this is, um, when it comes to the issue of, like, overt lying or being respectful of other people's things, like, like, I've gone to midnight mass and stuff with my family because some of my family members are Catholic and, you know, it's a big thing for them. And sometimes I, like, I huff and I puff, but I go, right? Um, and sometimes, you know, especially this one church, the singing is beautiful. I'm not mad at it, especially when it's in Latin and I don't have to hear the words. Um, but I don't take communion. Because to me, that would be an overt lie. No, I don't take communion either. Um, and I've been to, um, I've been to mass. I've been to um, two Catholic funerals. Thor save me. <laughs> Nothing quite like a Catholic funeral. My father is, um, his Catholic. My stepfather. Um, and um, when he goes, there will be a, there will be a mass. There will be a, there will be a thing. Yeah. The only thing kookier to me than a Catholic funeral, really, sorry Catholics, I, I don't mean this offensively in any way, it's, it's you gotta admit, the pageantry is a little strange from the outside, um, but is a Pentecostal one. <sighs> My great-grandmother's funeral, they did a fucking altar call. I was so offended. I mean, I don't, like, I mean, it's like, are you doing a laying on of hands and speaking in tongues at my grandmother's funeral, asshole? What is the matter with you? <laughs> Save. At least I didn't bring out a snake. Yeah, right. Save those shenanigans for when you're in church on Sunday. This is my grandmother's funeral. So, yeah. But there was no snake, right? There better not. Have, if there was, if there was, I was, if there was a snake, I was too pissed off to notice it. Actually, I probably, I probably wouldn't have minded the snake as much as I minded some of the other things that were going on. I was like. He really just invite people to get saved at grandma's funeral. Is he really using? Is he really using her death <sighs> as an opportunity to pad, to pad the docket? They passed. They passed the the offering plate. I was like, "Are you fucking serious?" Oh yeah, I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. Was it to pay for the funeral? No. <sighs> I'm just. 
no, I, no. I can't. I can't. I can't. I would. I've been like, what? No, nah, dude. No, nah. no, nah, dog. That's not how that's gonna work. And Last time have- I went to a funeral, it was for my uncle who had spent um, the majority of his life in prison because he was a klepto. Um, bless his heart. And um, me and my cousins are in the back. And this, and this minister who never, ever, ever met my uncle. It was very clear he never met my uncle. Going on and on and on about my uncle's soul and being welcomed into heaven. And we're, <laughs> we're looking at each other. And Stan leans over and says, this dude. I'm like, I know. He said, the good part is, though, if uncle managed to get into heaven. I said, yeah, there won't be a thing. That I, I, I said, I hope I have all that shit nailed down. <laughs> <laughs> we got tickled in the back of the church <laughs> you should have seen the looks we were getting from people it was terrible but bless his heart he had a, uh, he had a brain tumor so when he died it was it was a relief you know he he suffered a lot and um but we're <laughs> he's talking he's talking about our uncle going to heaven and all I can think about is him taking the pearly gates off the hinges. <laughs> <laughs> so I told my cousin that he had to get up and leave the room. <laughs> he had to get up. He, he acted like he was crying. <laughs> Anyways, so rest assured, if you get up to he- if heaven exists and you get up there, and the gates are gone. <laughs> My you know what happened him. to the if you, you know what happened to him. <sighs> but even at my grandma's weirdo evangelical funeral where they had their grape juice and crackers moment, I still didn't go down for communion. I got frowned at for that too. But I'm like, no. It well, I think it's actually disrespectful to take communion if you're not mm-hmm. um in the church. Um it's I, it's it's fraud. Yeah. This isn't my this isn't my jam. I'm sitting here respectfully tolerating this, but that's not my thing. That's you guys' thing. And that's your religious observances, and I'm not going to participate in it. Because it is disrespectful. It has nothing to do with me, because to me it's just grape juice and crackers, you know. But it's a it's a sacred religious religious observance. So and yet people think you should you should go ahead and participate. No. I thought it was in a Presbyterian um service. Um uh, it was a small service because uh, it was uh, I was attending with a friend who was there for counseling. It was, it was a group counseling session. And at the end of the counseling session, um, they held a small service because it was being led by a Presbyterian minister. And um, he offered all the participants, participants communion um, as part of the end of the service. Um, and, you know, he was praising them on their on their journey. Of sobriety it was very nice and he comes to me and he offers me communion and i shake my head and he was you know he was perfectly okay with it he put his hand on my head and blessed me and moved on <laughs> and i was like i hope your hands were clean <laughs> that's all i could think that's all i could think the whole time was, i hope your hands are clean i just washed my hair this morning <laughs> I, that's what i thought <laughs> I hope his hands were clean. I actually um have been baptized. Um my my father's mother had me baptized against my mother's will. She took me to church and had me baptized. 
my mom was furious. So, well, I was, I mean, I grew up in the church, you know that. So, yeah, I definitely was baptized. Because she thought she was right and my mother was wrong. And that's, you know, that's just how she was. She was a terrible person. Um, and my sister was baptized because she almost died at birth. Um, and um, my mother uh, was in a great, was very traumatized. And um, uh, the hospital clergy person um, came around and he offered my sister baptism. And... Um, my mother said yes, because she was afraid. She was afraid my sister was going to die. Um, and she had had a very traumatic birth. And she was by herself in intensive care. Uh, and yeah, I was like, hearing that story later, I was thinking to myself, you mercenary motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I, uh, my husband had to have surgery in a private hospital. And I was very used, I'm very used to public hospitals. Um, and, um, but this particular surgery had to be done in this hospital because um, they had the equipment to do it. It was a laser surgery um, for his nasal passages. So it was very specific equipment, equipment that had to be used. And the doctor could only get that equipment in this particular hospital where he had privileges. And so we go to this hospital. I, I'm sitting there in the waiting room. And um, suddenly this, this man in full color you know, priest collar comes in and sits down beside me. And I thought, Oh my God, my first thought was they have sent somebody to manage me because my husband has died during surgery. Why? I, I was like catatonic for like 30 seconds before he asked me how my day was going and um, why I was there. I thought they had sent him to me, you know, to prepare me for whatever, whatever was coming. You know, I'd never seen anything. I was like, you need, to get the fuck out of my space immediately. <laughs> I couldn't, I, I didn't have it in me to be polite. It was just like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like out. I, go. Just go. <sighs> mm -mm. I was baptized Presbyterian as well, Rogue. <sighs> I, yeah, I was baptized in the Pentecostal church, but I was baptized again because I don't know why I need to do that twice, but apparently. You know, some denominations don't recognize the other's observances or something. But I was baptized again at Episcopalian when I was a little older. Well, yeah, it was a terrible thing to just approach me that way. But the, the thing is, he came straight to me. Yeah, that's just that's just ugly. It it felt predatory. Yeah. The only time I've been to a, a why well, I've been the only time I've been to a private hospital that I can think of. Well, no, but other than a university hospital which is a little bit a completely different kettle of fish as far as private hospitals go. Um, but we had, a, there's a nonprofit Catholic hospital near where I used to live. And um, I did, I did find myself watching my mouth while I was there because they did have quite a few nuns running around and I do tend to sort of swear like a drunk sailor. So, you know, that's the interesting thing because I am more likely to offer a nun my complete respect than I am a priest. I don't think in the entire, the many procedures I had in that hospital, I don't think I ever ran, even saw a priest, but I saw quite a few nuns. There were a lot of nuns. I mean, I guess we, we can all guess why. I mean, yes. you don't see nuns on the news being accused of molesting children. None, <laughs> well, frankly, nuns have too much to do. They're busy. <laughs> They're too busy <laughs> they, doing they, all the real work. They, they I, I can't even call them bitches. The, them, them little angels are out there working. 
But also, there have also been some um, instances where um, priests have been accused of um, abusing nuns. Yeah. Not surprising, um, considering... Not... I mean, but people tend to abuse positions of power, especially men in positions of power tend to abuse it. Not that women can't, it just happens less. Um, so, you know, if, if, if a priest is in a position of power of a bunch of nuns, yeah, that could be bad juju. But then I asked myself, that is some arrogant shit, because aren't nuns the bride of God in Catholicism? I believe I mean, so. they wear a wedding band. They are literally the bride of God. So, um, that's some shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> that's some arrogant shit right there. <laughs> yeah. It's all terrible, but so we had an interesting interesting diversion into um rape by fraud and um what, that, what would we call that like um predatory religious practices during funerals and and times of when you need support you get predatory practices that's really a, just not good if you get anything but now, okay, Chestnut Nola says in the chat room, the spirit guides in the Sentinel trope, I often think some writers overuse them. The same with the ABO when the story it revolves around the trope to the detriment of the story. I would actually say that in most instances that I've read, that the, that the spirit animal is underutilized. If they're utilized at all. I mean, I've written stories for the sake of word economy where I didn't focus on the spirit guides much. Um, um, spirit guides are barely mentioned in the Sentinels of Atlantis until Rodney has to use his to soothe his Sentinel. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's a case of I think if you're not going to do anything interesting with the spirit guides, it's better to let them be the kind of background feature they were in, um, in in canon, which you didn't see the spirit guides very often. I mean, it was really uncommon to see them. They were a, a, a time something that was there at the time of detriment. So I think in general, if you're not going to do something like interesting with the spirit animals um, that it, it can feel like a, a distraction from the plot. Like what are, why are we it, like a, maybe an opportunity for cuteness or something? I don't know. Um, but other times I think this, you know, I've read cases where the spirit animal was really vital to the, to the story. Um, so it's only if it's a penguin. Well, that was, that was an emotional, that was an emotional support animal. Totally different. She said emotional support spirit guide. I said only if it's a penguin. Mm. <laughs> oh, a little teddy bear. A little polar bear. Look at that. That is the cutest fucking thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, uh, that uh, maybe polar bears are cute. Actually, polar bears in general, I think, are often very cute. They are mean and aggressive. So just take that in from a distance. <laughs> but they're not as bad as a moose. Moose are just mean. They're just spiteful. They're terrible, terrible, terrible animals. I mean, when I was, the last time I was in Alaska, um, I was in this small town, and there was, a, there was a fucking brown bear walking down the middle of the street. Nobody blinked. They just kept on going about their business. Bear walking down the street. It's like, leave it alone. It'll leave you alone. They didn't shut their doors. Nothing. This moose comes walking down the street. Everybody goes inside and shuts the door. <laughs> Tells you what they, which they consider the threat, and it's not the bear. <laughs> um, bears are like giant bees. If you don't mess with it, it won't mess with you. And that's true in most cases, except for the grizzly. Um, if you see a grizzly up close in nature in real life, it's probably the last moments of your life. 
Oh, they were good. Now, I w- so I did want to mention the thing about, she mentioned ABO the same, about it, it revolving around the ABO. The thing is, everybody's spin on ABO is a little bit different. Um, and if you don't explore the world building that you've got going on, your hierarchy, your, your structure, your pack structure, whatever it is you're doing, it can leave people to make assumptions about what you're doing that may not be true. So when you jump into a trope like ABO, I almost don't think you have a choice but to be prepared to explore it unless you're going to let assumptions about your, your world stand. And usually the assumption is going to be ugly stuff because most of the people who do that kind of, so like in um, subversive, I had to explore. um, I wasn't, I mean, I, I have to label it ABO because I'm using alphas, betas, and omegas, but the structure looks nothing like an ABO world. So, but I have to explore all of that. Otherwise, people are going to assume things about it. So it has to be based on canon experience, based on fanon. Right. Um, and fanon, I think, is often more detrimental to um, your reading experience than any other thing. And I say that as somebody who's probably created a lot of fanon myself. Mm-hmm. Fanon, Fanon incepts people. And the thing is, is people, it's, it's fine. But like we were talking the other day about the Fanon, about the third bot named Butterfingers, which I can't. There is no Butterfingers, by the way. There's no canon reference to Butterfingers. So people, when you take, and I, I wrote a story where I put Butterfingers in. Um, And I then went in the edit and took it out because Kira and I were talking about it while I was editing that story that um the did butterfingers actually exist and we went and did this some research no there's there's no bot named butterfingers so um um it, it that can but that can really get into people's heads and so people then think that butterfingers actually exist and they then write butterfingers and and it's not actually a problem except when they don't know that it's fanon and not canon and they get mad at somebody or ask a question about, hey, well, why didn't you include Butterfingers? Just because Butterfingers doesn't actually exist. There is one throwaway comment in the first Iron Man movie where Tony is frustrated with Dummy. Um, and he calls Dummy Butterfingers because Dummy keeps dropping stuff. Yeah. And so that's where that came from. And Fanon jumped on that and made a third bot named Butterfingers. But there is no third bot. So, and that's... And- When me and Julie were talking about it, my husband, I said, hey, would you do me a favor? And he was like, what? I said, would you watch the first Iron Man movie in Council Bots? (laughs) So three hours later, he goes back and says, there are two bots. Dummy and you. (laughs) So it is. Now, I do think most people know some stuff that's very strong fanon that people like. They know it's not canon. But it's the stuff people don't know isn't canon. Like, I think there's a lot of stuff about the Sentinel that people don't know is fanon. Because a lot of people who read avidly in the, in the Sentinels and Guides are known trope have never seen an episode of the Sentinel. So they don't know that there were no guides. They don't know that... Um, yeah, the, the word guide is only used once and it's used by a bad guy. Yeah. The, I mean, Blair clearly had a spirit animal, so he was something to Jim in the same way that Incacha was. But it was not something that was actually a defined role called guide. Um, there were no bonds between sentinels and guides because there were no guides. So canon sentinel world building is very different 
than what Fanon has. So people assume, and, and, the, and the bizarre thing about that is people who've only ever read the Fanon will then lecture people or they, I don't know, somebody, somebody got lectured about them doing spirit guides the wrong way. And I was like, the wrong way compared to what? You know, that's right? crazy cakes because there was um, no, um, because there was no, I mean, I do think in past it passed something onto Blair, but I don't specifically remember what words he used. But it seems like he told Blair, he passed Blair some kind of gift and he told him he would be the shaman of the city, maybe? Shaman of the great city or something like that? Yeah, that, that rings a serious bell for me. It's been a long time since I watched the show. But it was, but the thing is, you're talking about like three or four seasons of shows, three seasons or four, where you have like six or seven references over all of these episodes. Okay, that's it. Like six or seven references that we have built this entire mythology out of is six or seven vague references that don't have a lot of explanation over the course of what 60 70 episodes that's not a lot of actual substance that the fanon is built out of um so and, and it's a fake city too cascade washington is not actually a real city so for those of you who think it's there it's not uh based upon its position it's probably seattle maybe tacoma um, they kind of imply it's north of Seattle, which would be Bellingham, but Bellingham is nowhere near a big enough city to be Cascade. But anyway, there's no city. Um, but, it, but Cascade also appears to be a very wealthy city. Yeah. There's a lot of money in Cascade, so I would say it probably is a, a, a fake Seattle. It's fake Seattle, although I think they reference Seattle's existing south of them. But so there's a um, there's a whole... There's a whole mythology Fanon has built out of a few obscure references in the show. And, and then, and, and it's a Fanon construct. This whole thing is a Fanon construct. Um, and people will lecture you about doing it right or wrong, which is insane. There are spirit animals in the show. They're mentioned, they're, they're shown to mention very briefly um, you see, Jim. You know that Blair's is a wolf, and that Jim's is a jaguar, and they um, during the episode where Blair is murdered by Alex, and Jim brings him back. He brings him back, and their their soul animals merge, and that became a um, a serious point of um, uh, fandom contention. It became a real big point on fandom creation around the idea of the sentinel and the guide bond. Well, because Blair woke up from having died because Jim basically brought Blair back from death. Because Blair died. Jim brought him back. Their souls kind of did this merge thing. And when Blair woke up, he kind of invited Jim, like, come on this journey with me kind of thing. And Jim said no and went and found Alex instead. So, you know, that's kind of all you got to go on. Now, I think we see Jim's Jaguar prior to that point. But I think the first time we see the wolf is when Blair died. So, and, uh, they go. They they end up at the temp, the temple of the sentinel in, in Peru. the middle of nowhere in Peru, and um, Alex ends up comatose. Right, because she wasn't. Uh, I, the I think I think the inference was that that what I took from it was that she wasn't worthy to enter. The, they have like these sacred pools or something in this temp, temple, and that she should not have gone in those pools. I mean, she just killed somebody. 
And it, no, the spirit guides don't do anything. They're they're actually, I think, in the canon of the show, that the the wolf and the jaguar are actually representations of Blair and um, Jim. I thought there was an episode where, like the the jaguar, kind of appeared to Jim in a dream or something, like it was trying to warn him about something. Maybe, but I could be that. That might be just maybe I had a funny dream after watching the show once. Um, so, but you see them very infrequently. Um, blue dreams. There are blue dreams. Jim's ha- um, Jim has blue dreams. Yeah. So that's blue, where the, blue jungle where, dreams. That's where the spirit plane thing. The thing is, it, the reason why I think it was more of a another plane of existence versus just a dreamscape is because they both were there. They saw each other there in their in their wolf jaguar form, assuming that's them. You know, if you, whether you believe it's their spirit animals or you believe it's actually representations of them on the spirit plane, either way, they were both there and they saw each other. So that kind of implies another plane of existence, but you could just assume it's a dreamscape. This is what I mean by it's all vague. It's all very, you know, canon hasn't got much substance by which this mythology was built around. And so people, there is a very, um, there's a very, like some people are very militant about how that fanon should be expressed. When I wrote The Awakening, and you guys know I had a really terrible experience in the Sentinel fandom, but when I wrote The Awakening, um, I read a whole bunch of, of fan fiction for the Sentinel, and I was really enamored with the process. Um, and I was really, um, I was really enamored with the whole idea of Sentinels and guides and being known and tribes and prides and spirit animals. Um, it just became like this this really big monumental thing in my head. So I wrote The Awakening um, and the pride system and all that just kind of just merged in my brain and formed. And it, it, it made, it never crossed my mind to write one where it was just Jim being a Sentinel. <laughs> right. That was just never, it just never crossed my mind because that wasn't enough for me. I needed something bigger. Well, that's one of those things where, for me, Thank all, you. all of the good stories, not maybe not all, but th- there's a huge ton of, um, huge ton. Oh, my God. There's a ton of really good, you know, purely Sentinel stories that are rooted in Sentinel canon. Mm-hmm. They don't, they aren't Sentinels and guides are known. There's no, you know, there, there aren't spirit guides running around everywhere. Uh, but I think Just the, Jim doing his thing. Right. And they're good. Yeah, they're good. They're very good. And for and based in canon, if that was all there was, that was but people came up with this fanon about the Sentinels and Guides are known universe and they started expanding it out into other fandoms, other Sentinels waking up, and it caught on like wildfire because that is what it's this mythology you can lay over another fandom. But the thing is, is it has no canon basis. Yeah, or almost none. And so what you do with it, the thing is, the fanon exists the way it exists. I will say this. It exists the way it exists, and there are variations of fanon. But that body of fanon with its variations exists the way it w- exists because, in a lot of ways, people have worked out the kinks. So if you're trying to be original with the, with the sentinel trope, or you have to be careful to not make things that don't make sense. And that's where people And get- also... <sighs> We're going to do Sentinel next year. We're going to have Sentinel all year. We're going to have a Sentinel challenge in April, July, and November. I already have the beautiful art made. I'm really excited about all three of them. Um, I'm really gung-ho for the year of the Sentinel. I, and I really, I kind of burned out on Sentinel for a while, but I'm, I'm, I'm ready to dig in. I've actually already plotted half my first story. Um, 
which is crazy because I haven't even finished plotting my my November yet um, for this year. But what I would say, and I ask of you as Rough Trade participants, and um, this will come up again, um, please don't write slave fic and put it on my on my site. I'm not gonna outright ban it, but please don't write slave fic on my site. <laughs> It, it was such an ugly aspect of the Sentinel fandom, and it's just, it would be a terrible thing to bring into our little Black Dress legacy, so it would be great if you wouldn't do that. My April story is already plotted, but it was plotted before you announced next year, so. <laughs> I actually, okay, the, the first one is going to be Pairs, um, which is an established uh, relationship fic that will be in april then we'll do two bonding fix in july just like normal we'll do our usual boot camp fix um and then in november we're going to do layers which means um you have to take the sentinel and layer another trope on top of it so you can write stargate sentinel fusion and layer a trope on top of it or you can do an mcu fit sentinel fusion and lay a, another trope on top of it like jilly <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. You've got uh, a trope you could lay on. Rule 63. Um, Mpreg. Um, huh. What other kind of tropes could you use? Why? Um, you could do a case fic. Case, that would be interesting. Case fic um, would be a good trope. Um, there are fandom specific um, tropes that you might want to explore like that don't work in every fandom. Like, um, like a Harry Potter gets a new family, or um, time travel in the MCU, or or soulmates. Yeah, soulmates, soulmates would be good. Be soulmates, interesting. Soulmates, soulmates and SNG thing could be a very interesting thing to try to meld together. Uh, but for April, I am doing um, the sequel, not the sequel, the sequel sequel to Send for the Man, which I had plotted when I wrote Send for the Man, because I plan to do uh, rewrite the Avengers with um, all of the Shepherd brothers in Iron Man suits. Yay, so I'm so I, excited. I think I'm gonna actually do um, a sequel to Just One Touch. Oh, nice. I have John coming online in Just One Touch. Um, he's been offered this gift um, by his spirit animal. And um, I kinda wanna open it up and, and see where it goes, but I'll definitely write the sequel in third person. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to. I decided I had wanted to. Actually, the the first. But yours doesn't have to be a sequel in April. It just has to be an established relationship, right? Well, and and for me, the easiest way to do an established relationship was to write one that is already. I already wrote a sequel. Uh, write a sequel to one I already have a relationship in, um. And but actually, the first story I plotted was, I had this idea for the shepherds being the Iron Legion instead of, you know, non instead of uh, AI or Iron Legion. And uh, and that was my original idea that Send for the Man was sort of like the prequel of, and I never got around to writing it. So April's usually a 30K minimum. Yeah, April will be 30. Then we'll do 225s or two maximum 225 at um, in July, and then we'll do 50 in November minimum. So, so yeah, so I'm going to do, but I have to write a story between now in April, because the story that has the retelling of the um, the retelling of the Avengers with the Shepherds all in Iron Man suits, um, that was the third story in the arc. <laughs> uh oh, yeah. So I have a whole other story that goes in between the two. <laughs> we are halfway through Quantum Bang. 
Yes. And um, in five minutes, Sunrider's story came out this morning. I haven't gotten a chance to read that yet, but it's MCU. And Claire's story, I believe, is next up. I think Claire's story is next up. And it is Teen Wolf and Skyrim. Yay! Yep, they're confirmed. Confirmed. So I'm very excited to read my other Teen Wolf buddy story because she's, uh, she's the other Teen Wolf writer in the challenge. Um, so... Uh, I've never played Skyrim or anything like that, but I have read stories set in Skyrim before. So I, I did a little bit of research when I read a story that was crossover with Skyrim. So I've done a little bit of research in Skyrim. It's pretty, to me, it seemed like it was pretty easy to pick up what was going on. And I know Claire, I think she put a lexicon in her summary sheet to help explain some stuff. So are your shepherds going to get swords? I always got to give the shepherd swords, like special Iron Man swords. Right. But yeah. But like I worked out the colors for everybody and I kind of, I'm everybody's call signs, you know, now Alex's um, Iron Man suit is named Buttercup because that's just the way that went down. Um, and uh, he doesn't like, he doesn't like flying the suit though. So it just follows him around like a lost puppy. <laughs> That's adorable. <laughs> so, he's like, I'm not, I'm not getting it. So he'll only do it if it's an emergency. He does not like being in the suit. Unlike his brothers, Alex does not like to fly. So he does not like being in the suit, but it's got its own AI. It, and and the, the, he actually named the butter, the AI buttercup to try to explain why his suit is named buttercup. Each suit does have its own AI. Actually, each brother has its own AI. And, um, but yeah, so it just follows him around everywhere whenever he's in the tower by himself, protecting him. <laughs> So I, I just got this kind of lost puppy vibe about because Alex won't get in the suit. <laughs> I'm not getting in that damn suit. Put on the suit. <laughs> like, no, no worries. So yeah, it's like up with colors for all of them. So the call signs for the suits are I remember Aries, Dante, Phoenix. Aries, Dante, Phoenix. I'm forgetting one. I can't believe I forgot one of my one of the brothers. Phoenix is Evan. Um hmm. That's terrible. I forgot one of the names of my boys. But yeah, so I come up with colors for all the suits and stuff. Um, one of my favorite parts of Unleash Your Demons is um, when Tony asks May what she wants her her call sign to be. Because, you know, she hated being called the Cavalry. Yeah. Because of that rescue op that she went in and killed everybody to get people out. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, of course she's rescue. Rescue. Of course yeah. she is. Actually, I think <laughs> my favorite call sign was Iron Maiden. I have to say, I, I was tickled pink when Betty said that she wanted to be to be Iron Maiden. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Betty's my spirit animal, I'm pretty sure. But Alex doesn't care because I mean, like I said, Alex Alex doesn't care about the whole um I, I think that was came pretty clear and sound for the man that he didn't care about the buttercup call sign because as he said to Tony, he they know who the heavy hitter is. <laughs> Uh, okay, Spartan. So John was Spartan, David is Ares, um, Matthew is Diablo, and Evan is Phoenix. It wasn't Dante's Diablo. So Spartan, Spartan, Ares, Diablo, and Phoenix are the call signs for the pilots, the other Iron Man pilots, and, and then there's Buttercup. I don't know if Rodney would get in a suit. Uh, all, everybody has suits, so even M Miko and Rodney have suits, but they don't—they don't like them either. Well, Miko likes hers; she likes the suit, but she's not particularly interested in flying into battle with it. It was actually really difficult for me to get for me to get in the headset to put Betty in um, into battle, and I had to—I had to frame it for myself. And you know what would put her 
um, willing to go on the front line. Um, and um, I still don't quite know if I accomplished that. That's the one part in um, in Unleash Your Demons where I was like, is, is it really? Is this Betty Ross flying around a suit really happening in my story? <laughs> I thought a good idea. I bought it. I, I bought Iron it. Maiden aside, I totally bought it. I mean, I mm. think it would depend upon the kind of mission, right? I mean, I think somebody could send you could send Betty on a mission that it would be like jarringly difficult to believe. But I, I bought what I read totally. And you know, I mean, she's I, doing her part. You know, if in the beta, I'd have told you if I didn't buy it because my I'm not my like Unleash Your Demons is not a um, in-game fix it. It is an, an Infinity War fix it. Yeah, I well, had not watched Endgame when I watched when I, I um I'm gonna challenge wrote you. well of course you had you wrote it long before but I'm gonna challenge you on it being an Endgame fix it it's an Endgame fix it in the sense that it prevents Endgame from happening right <laughs> there is no Endgame in Unleash Your Demons so it's a fix it in the sense that those shenanigans do not happen so um, but you weren't too far off on your premise for what happened right after which is that you know, Tony and Nebula went off into space together. So I just did a better job of it. So arguably <laughs> you were canon compliant with, with Endgame up to the very beginning of Endgame. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you just fixed all the shit. So, um, but the, the interim story, which has to come out before I can write warriors, which is the story for April is um, Tony has to Tony. Well, Tony, Tony wants to give, he knows he has a legal problem with giving the suits away because the government's going to get touchy. Like he can give one to his guide, but he can't just give one to his guide's family because otherwise it's like he's weaponizing people. And so they kind of, there's like this, I'm working with this rule that he can only give these suits to family members. Otherwise the government's going to step in and try to take them away from him. So Tony's been sitting on this knowledge for a while until he's ready for them to get married. <laughs> and then he proposes. And Alex is like, are you proposing to me so you can give my brother armaments? Really? <laughs> he's like, well, sort of. I'm sort of doing that. Let's not focus on the big picture. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so the, there's kind of, the, there'd be sort of like a short story in between the two that kind of bridges why, because um, Stark and Shepard Industries are going to merge, except for two divisions. Um, and most of Stark Industries is going to move to Canada because Canada is going to protect Tony's. Um, uh, I don't think Steve Rogers is a monster. I think he is um, flawed. They all are. I mean, they're all deeply flawed in their own way. But I think Steve Rogers, in particular, is the victim of um, bad writing. He's a victim of the bad writing, but in canon, I, I had like absolutely no idea where that came from. I had to read up the chat a little bit. Uh, but I think he's a victim also of S.H.I.E.L.D. He's a victim of Nick Fury's typical manipulations. And Nick Fury wasn't acting in any way atypical for Nick in what he did with Steve. But Steve was not aware enough of the world he lived in to be able to counter and deal with those manipulations. I mean, Steve was manipulated the moment he came out of the ice. He was manipulated, controlled. Um, the information he was given, the... I mean, even in his, like, when he thought he had privacy, he was being spied on by S.H.I.E.L.D. and manipulated by Sharon Carter. So, you know, there... He he did... I, I can't... I don't... Ex saying he's not a monster, I don't... I wouldn't mean that to excuse 
the things he wound up doing. No, there's no excuse for his ignorance except ignorance. I mean, that's it. He he's purposefully ignorant. And is it out of grief or psychological damage? I mean, I honestly believe when I when I because I did see most of Civil War now. Unfortunately for me, I said I was never going to do that. But for research purposes, I wound up seeing most of it. I really believe that there is a case to be made that Steve and Bucky, as much as I do not like their actions, were both severely psychologically traumatized during. It doesn't excuse anything Steve has done, but it explains it. And I think the fact that there is so much underlying manipulation and psychological trauma that is completely unaddressed in the canon that. It, it separates him from being a man who's fucked up versus being a monster. If he had done all of that stuff, if, if Tony Stark had done the things that Steve Rogers did, I would say that was monstrous because Tony knows better. And he doesn't, and even with, even with the trauma that Tony has, he, he doesn't, he know he, he wouldn't, I wouldn't excuse it. And it, like I said, it's not an excuse, but Steve is, um, Steve's fucked up and he had, Oh, he's definitely fucked up. I mean, I really believe that whole thing about the fact that he didn't even try to get out of the ship. I mean, think about how they found him. Right. And when they find Captain America, he is laying on the floor of that ship with his fucking shield on his chest. He never even tried to get out of that plane. Nope. And he could have. He could have. He was a fucking super soldier. If he, he committed suicide, he could have jumped out of that. He could have like targeted the plane for the ice and jumped out. That plane was going to go into the ice, whether he was in it or not, and he would have survived a, cr- a landing on that landing in the in the ice like that. So he was messed up when he went into the ice, and I think that's why people extrapolate that to being that he was really, really damaged by Bucky's death. I, you know, I totally get the whole that whole vibe people have that those two were like soulmates or something because their their unhealthy actions around the others. It is really profound. Um, But I, you know, that whole part about him going back in time and lurking in the MCU the whole time, um, you can say that he created an alternate reality. Um, What it boils down to is that the writers of the MCU didn't want to kill Captain America, but Chris Evans was done. Yeah, that's totally what was going on there. And they made a really bad choice to handle it because what a, what a better choice would have been a better character arc for Captain America would be to admit that he fucked up and that he needed to pass on the mantle to somebody else and, or even just have him just be too, too grief stricken by all the loss. You know what would actually would have been a very good redemption arc for Captain America. If he had grabbed that gauntlet from Tony and said, no, you need to let me do this. Yeah, I agree. You've got a little girl home. You need to let me do this. And he should have done the snap. And that would have been a redemption arc. And, and the thing is, I think he needed redemption. But even if they didn't want to, if they wanted to just write him out, right? They could have done it without them blowing up their whole universe. They blew up their whole canon. And what characterization we got from him about him, they completely violated with that stunt. And right. I understand why the writers did it. It was shitty writing. And I, I have, we just have to write it off as shitty writing because I do not believe in any, in, in no world that I would write is he lurking around in the MCU. Um, it's not true to character. No. That he would have let his wife work with Hydra? No, absolutely not. And let Bucky be tortured after everything? That he would he have does? left, 
after he would have left Bucky in the hands of Hydra for decades? Fuck you, no, Marvel. He would not have. As for all of Steve's monstrosity, he would not have left Bucky in the hands of Hydra. Yeah. But if I'm going to reclaim him as a character, it's always going to happen before Winter Soldier. Always. I have to say that I think that. Okay, RDJ also wanted to retire. He said he wanted to get out before it started to look ridiculous. And I don't blame him. I think he still looks awesome as Iron Man. Not going, damn. Yeah. Damn. Did you see the black the beard and the got it going on? Um, but I think it would have been better if they let Tony, let Steve do the snap, the, the second snap. And then Tony could have retired and picked an, uh, an Iron Man to mentor. Yeah. Or an Iron Woman, whatever he wanted to do, and let and let let him run it because he that's what he should that's what he should, that that should have been his arc, right? Is he has his family and he's running it now. I mean, he he had paid his dues, so you know. So that's what I, that's how I would have ended Infinity War if I wrote Infinity War. Steve would have done the snap. Thor would have started using Peter Quill's Bowflex. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but here's the thing: I would have never. They both need to work out. I got their aggression. I would have. Ne I would never. Even though I love the idea of doing that, I would never write that story because I would never want to write in canon that got that far. No, no, me neither. So, um, anything I would write would, would has to be pre. If I, unless I'm just like, if 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 if, he, if he, Steve's involved, it's going to be pre Winter Soldier. If I've written Steve Austin as a lost cause, um, it has to be. Mm, you 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 popped on me. No, I, I can't hear you. I you can't hear me. I can hear you now, but I lost you. No, I don't think you did. I think I was, I stopped mid sentence because actually probably mid word because I was trying to, I mean, I was going to say, I don't think I would go much further than um, much further than the canon, but in the, in July I'm writing age of Ultron. So what the fuck do I know? But, but you know what though? The July challenge is very specific, right? So it's a, it's a different set of circumstances and you're only writing 25 K. I wouldn't want to devote, um, a huge amount of time to fixing those those parts, which is why I sent Tony back in time to where I did, so he had time to to sit back and look at it. Right. I mean, if I were to do a time travel, I would want to go like you like you did, go back far enough to make significant work. But that's that's the the re ending for Age of Ultron is just seriously, it's about Tony saying no, saying no, no, absolutely not, and and him doing damage control and how he's going to handle the fallout of Age of Ultron. So. Um, I put in that I, um, I'm not going to do the right back. I mean, if I, November will be a tad more of a take back the character kind of thing, but, um, July is strictly about, that's why I didn't plot a, a pairing is because it is, it is, it's, Tony draws a hard line in the sand. The only character that I would have a hard time, um, redeeming or taking back in any single way, uh, would be Wanda. I have no use for Even her. Loki's terrible actions in the Avengers can be taken back to the fact that he was under the thrall of the Mind Stone. Um, and he was under the power Thanos had manipulated him with the Mind Stone. Um, but Wanda went into Hydra a bitch and she came out a bigger one. Yeah. Uh, it, Wanda's ties to Hydra made Bucky's tolerance of her really strange to me. Which is why, right. which is why the fanon that she affects people's minds, that she's affecting the other Avengers' minds, is not that implausible to me. Because considering how Bucky would have to feel about Hydra, the fact that he tolerated her was so bizarre, super bizarre. 
So I, yeah, I definitely, I'm not, in general, I'm not interested in exploring Age of Ultron happening, but because of the July, I wanted to explore the idea of Tony just saying, uh-uh, she's not welcome on this team. Absolutely not. I didn't like her at Tony's funeral either. I think that um, she put them on a terrible path. and It was so disrespectful to me that, that, that they put her there. It just... I think it's too late, actually, um, for Wanda. Um, her her desire for revenge is pathological. And even if she had gotten adopted and put into therapy, I think she would have come out of it just smarter and more manipulative and more focused on getting revenge. But really, who really thinks that weapon was actually Tony's? No. Because nobody. Because it had to be a knockoff. It, it right. had to be a fake Stark weapon because it didn't fire. Right. And I, I actually, I haven't plotted to have a senator point that out, that when it comes up in a hearing, in, 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 the, in the, what I have plotted that for July, that when it comes up about this bomb that went off, one of the, one, a, a senator who was former um, military actually chimes in and said that it was a counterfeit. It wasn't a Stark weapon. Otherwise, it would have blown up. The military regrets that, that, that Dr. Stark no longer manufactures weapons because we know that they blow up. I but the thing is I don't think it needs to be an elaborate setup by Hydra that that bomb was there. I'm sure they're account if if you have the best of something people counterfeit you. Yeah. And, and it's also more plausible that um that it was um um defective ordnance that should have been destroyed that um Stain was selling under the table. Both of those plot lines are more plausible. Counterfeit and um Obadiah's um black market, black market. Dealings are both more plausible than something a stark weapon just sat there and didn't blow up for days that's just stupid you, you know, it's it's easy to say but it it's probably accurate as well is that she had a psychotic break staring at that bomb for days she had a psychotic break yeah she did which meant that she was not and you can say that, that needs the problem is with, with her is she's got too much power to get her help because she's not going to allow it so she deserves help. She deserves mental health care. And Tony's probably the person who has the most insight into that. But she's not going to allow herself to be taken care of. And the team enabled her. So, yes, I agree, Arate. It is, it, I think Hannibal Lecter probably also had a psychotic break when he was young. But Hannibal Lecter can't brainwash people just by, getting, by, by being in the same room with them. So... Yeah, he has to actually open his mouth to accomplish that. Wanda does the most. Her, her. <laughs> yeah. There's no brainwashing though. <laughs> but um, it, Wanda does the most detestable things. I think that characters do in the MCU, and she gets away with it, and they pat her on the head. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I to me, I, I will never be able to deal with Wanda positively in a story because. Bruce Banner's my unicorn, and she exactly turned right there. Him into a monster. Claire said it. She set the Hulk on Johannesburg and smiled about it. Yep, that's it. That's all you need to say. And and the Hulk is basically he he's he has the mentality of a child. Mm -hmm. She mind raped a child, and uh, there's just and Bruce there's Bruce. I don't think Bruce understands Hulk very well in canon. Um, but the thing he feared the most is that Hulk would hurt people. That's what he feared the most. And Wanda made Hulk into the monster Bruce feared that he was. And it, it's unforgivable. It's unforgivable. 
I hated what they did with him in Endgame too. They destroyed, they murdered her Hulk and destroyed Bruce's humanity in the same, same in the same joke is what they did. They made a joke out of it. It is disgusting. I mean, there are lots of terrible, disgusting jokes in Endgame actually, um, because let's you know let's fat shame the guy with depression. Yes, that's a good idea. The, was it, was, I think it that was, Bowflex joke is not fat shaming, actually, because that's a reference to when the Guardians find um, Thor. The other Guardians were saying how perfect Thor was, and Quill was like, fine, I'll get a Bowflex. I'll work out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself the whole time, how the hell does Peter Quill know about fucking Bowflexes? So I looked it up, and the Bowflex actually did come out shortly before he was kidnapped. <laughs> Bowflex has been around, and also the funny. <laughs> what's funny about that is when you think about the guys who are the most built in the show, it would have to be Chris Pratt, Chris, the three Chris's, right? Chris yeah, Hemsworth, I... Chris Pratt, and Chris, um, and Chris Evans. So any of them, any of those three, saying I'll just get a Bowflex, is just ridiculous to me because I mean maybe he's the least built of the three, but he's got to be more built than any other guy in the in the in the franchise compared, except for the other two Chris's. Right, so I don't see any of them actually being able to use a Bowflex consistently without breaking it. Oh yeah, they would snap those things like, like. I mean, I have a Bowflex, me, wow. but I'm not in any danger of breaking it. <laughs> also, a lot of people who are tall, if you're really tall, which some of the Chris's are, Bowflex is not the best workout because they actually have a very, sh a fairly short range of motion. Yeah, they do. And I'm five four. Um, and, um, my husband is five, eight and he can use it. Uh, but I would say that, um, I'm more comfortable with the Bowflex than he is because of the range of motion. There was a, there was a knockoff of Bowflex that came out. I want to say in the late nineties or something that one of their big selling points was that they had a much longer range of motion for people who were taller. Was it a Nordic something? It might have been. Was it part of the Nordic track system? It might have been their knock their their version of the book. And, and the, I, not, by when I say knockoff and just I mean that in the sense that it was similar, not that it was cheaper. Most knockoffs right, are cheaper, yeah. but anything from Nordic track is not cheap. It is not cheap. But yeah, I I find I like the idea. I find I like the idea of redeeming characters. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it so many times. Um in stories, I tackled Captain America in um Sentry, which is almost done. Uh, congratulations! Yeah, I've got about I. I, I like the redemption because it's a challenge. I, I like to challenge myself as a writer. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, and there's so much about Captain America's character that that really needs to be addressed. And there's also a whole lot about Natasha's character that needs to be addressed. Those two need. So, those two are the most dire need of help. And I mean. Kara had to talk me off the ledge with Steve Rogers the first week of Nano because I was like, I can't write this guy's point of view. I don't, I, uh, I mean, it made sense for him to be my POV character, one of my POV characters because of the <laughs> plot. Right. And I was just, I was frozen. <laughs> and Kara's like, don't think about him as canon. Just sit and think about him as the character you want to, you know, write. Imagine him different. Don't think about what he's done in the movies. Think about, Think about the character you're developing and write that. So, <laughs> so Claire, you know, as bad as he is in canon, at least he's not actually literally as long, as bad as he is in the MCU. He's not literally a Nazi like he is in the comic books. Just saying. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> but and so it, it, 
she had talked me off the ledge a couple times with that until I got in the groove of writing him, but I didn't want to make him like um, completely divorced from the character we know either. So there were some hurdles to get over with him. She busted out her emoji. Do you see what she said? But you know, the thing is, is that Stephen Cannon is, is not exactly, I mean, people tended to write him um, from the very start before the character went off the rails in Winter Soldier as being this, um, this, I don't know, that he was probably a virgin and, you know, that he was uptight. American pie and uh, apple pie and apple cheeked babies. And um, just, but the thing is, is that Steve Rogers committed fraud repeatedly trying to get into the army so he could go to Europe and kill Nazis. This is, <laughs> and, <laughs> it was not necessarily a good person to begin with. Well, and he traveled with showgirls for months. He was not a virgin. No, he was not a virgin. Looking like that, those girls, all of them got a ride. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> Which was totally the, well, I, I mean, him getting a ride was the premise for Sentry, is that he he got one over with a nurse, but not a showgirl, but um, because I needed to be closer to when he went into the ice than the showgirls, but anyway. But there's no way that he was always that, But because even before he went off the rails. He was not the boy next door. He was a guy from Brooklyn. Right. And but even before the, the stories that were written, a lot of, not all, but a lot of the stories that were written for him that that portrayed him positively before Winter Soldier um, still portrayed him as being kind of uptight, no sense of humor, he never swears. Um, Which is just ridiculous. I mean, he was in the army for how many years? He, he, there's no way he, there's no way fuck would make him blush. Yeah. Now I've had, I don't think much would make him blush. No. <laughs> Actually, I, I have him saying that he used to swear, but he just chooses not to most of the time because he knew his, he knows his mom wouldn't like it. Uh, which is, you know, but what you do in the army and what you do when you're, what you do in the military and what you do when you're at home on the couch aren't exactly the same thing. But it's easiest to deal for me to deal with Steve and reset his course if I can get it get to him before Winter Soldier. Once he does that data dump, I think if you can, the once he participates in I that, I lost you. Did you lose me? A little bit. The once he sometimes I'm pausing. I don't know if you're losing me or if I'm just kind of thinking through things. But once you once he does it participates in the data dump, him coming to understand the consequences of those actions is an angst fest. It's not impossible, but pulling him back is a much more of an angsty story where I think he would give up the shield if he really if you brought him to a place of understanding what he had done with Natasha with that data dump, I think he would give up being Captain America if I were to write a redemption arc around that. And that's more angst than I want to write. So that's why I would want to get to him before Winter Soldier. I want to get to him right at that spot where he sees um, the Winter Soldier on the street. We've, we've, ta we've talked, we've already talked about it. Um, where I want him to recognize um, Bucky as the Winter Soldier the moment he sees him. Mm -hmm. I, I want him to recognize Bucky. Um, and, and I want it to just to derail yeah, everything. And immediately distrust everything he's heard up to that point. So, because I think he'd have to look at that and go, whoa, he's been an assassin for how long? And you can't tell me S.H.I.E.L.D. doesn't know who that is. Because Steve was supposed to be a good tactical and strategic thinker. And he sure didn't show it in that movie. No, he didn't. The only time you got to see Steve actually even think is when he's in the elevator. When he recognizes that he's in trouble. And then he offers very graciously, I might add, to let anybody get off the elevator they would like to. That was <laughs> that was that was a really good moment. And I think it's early enough in canon that if we go with that plot line, 
that we can still be there, at least in the background. Yeah. There was um, one one get off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was like, yeah, you need to get off the elevator. <laughs> get <the> fuck off. <laughs> Uh, so Claire mentioned in chat, Claire's story is up now, by the way. So when we get done with the podcast, y'all run out and read her team story. But she mentioned that um, Green Eyes Blue wrote a Steve story where he makes some different choices called Alchemical Currents for the Quantum Bang. That is already up. So if you're looking for a Steve story where he does not go down that path that he went down with Winter Soldier and stuff, uh, it's Steve Logan. Um, so it's an X-Men. Logan from the X-Men. So X-Men cross. You can handle the Chris Evans, um, Hugh Jackman hotness. There, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that visual. Not mad. <laughs> okay. We're actually, it's 1226. So um, we've been going. Um, and last time we went this long, we kind of got in a little trouble. So <laughs> let's go ahead and um, end the podcast. And you guys can go read the new story. Are you with me, Jilly? I don't know. I'm not sure who I'm with. I'm with somebody. Say goodnight. Good night, everyone. <laughs>